Uh, the number one best-selling book in the history of the world is unsurprisingly the Bible. Uh, the second, the number two best-selling book in the history of the world is The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, a book that I hope uh, every Christian uh, picks up, owns, and reads. I hope there are a few copies there available on the book nook. And in that book, one of the great forgotten characters of John Bunyan's the Pilgr in Pilgrim's Progress is Christian's fellow traveler, Faithful. Uh, like all of Bunyan's characters in the book, their names uh, really give their character away. So Faithful is, well, he's faithful. Uh, he faithfully accompanies Christian along the road. And when they come to the town of Vanity Fair, he faithfully tells the truth. For his crime of telling the truth about the town's religion, he is put on trial and he faithfully gives his defense and is unjustly put to death. And Bunyan applies this poem to Faithful. He writes, Now faithful, play the man, speak for thy God. Fear not the wicked's malice, nor their rob. Speak boldly, man, the truth is on thy side. Die for it, and to life in triumph ride. I wonder if you want to be found faithful. Perhaps as a husband or a wife. Perhaps as a student. Perhaps as an employee or a mother, or father, perhaps even as a friend. Do you want to be found faithful? Maybe you would be pleased if an epitaph on your gravestone simply read, faithful to Christ even to the end. While you live, do you want to be found faithful in your calling as a Christian? Do you want to be found faithful to share Jesus with great and small alike? If you do, then there is help for you and for me in God's word this morning. In the passage that we hope to study together in Acts chapters 25 and 26, we find Paul faithful while he's on trial. We find him faultless too. He speaks of Jesus and he proclaims his glory. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 934. The book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus Christ through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and moving on through Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And that's the program that the book of Acts follows. It works through those kind of four phases as we watch the message of Jesus and the conquest of that message of Jesus extend to the ends of the earth. And our studies in the book of Acts have taken us to that last phase in Jesus' program, seeing his disciples bear witness to the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the end of the earth. And in particular, we have seen Jesus work through the Apostle Paul. Jesus has purposed to send Paul on to Rome. So back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, uh, Jesus told Paul that he must testify in Jerusalem and also in Rome. And so from everything from that point forward in the book has been heading toward Rome. And along the way, Paul's been testifying. He's been declaring the truth about Jesus. He's not had an easy path to Rome. His time in Jerusalem, he was attacked by a mob. He was almost beaten by a Roman tribune. Uh, he was almost torn to pieces by a Jewish council. He, there was an assassination attempt on his life. Uh, he was whisked away to a place called Caesarea. Uh, where after a trial by Felix, 
he was left to languish in prison for two years. And that's where our text picks up. Acts 25 picks up with Paul still in prison and a new governor coming to town. And the question we're left with is this. How will Paul get to Rome? Since Jesus wants Paul to testify about him in Rome, how's he going to get there? Well, Acts chapters 25 and 26, they help us answer that question. Paul's going to be tried again. He's going to be found faultless, innocent of all the charges levied against him. And he's going to be found faithful to his commission to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He not only finds a way to leverage the legal system to send him on to Rome and to Caesar, but at the same time, he's going to be found faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. So here's what Acts 25 and 26 teach us through the life and ministry of Paul. Like Paul, as ambassadors for Christ, we should be found faultless of charges and faithful to our commission. That's the thrust of this text and this sermon. Here it is in a single sentence. As an ambassador for Christ, be found faultless of charges and faithful to your commission. We'll unpack these two chapters under two headings. Be found faultless and be found faithful. And I believe there's an outline there in the bulletin provided. If you pull that outline and you look at it, you see, now Mike, this is a sermon, uh, a two-point sermon. It's a five-point sermon, really masquerading as a two-point sermon. Let's just keep that between you and me. And let's begin with point number one. Be found faultless. Uh, Follow along as I read the first 12 verses of the chapter, where we see Paul's innocence before Festus. He's the new governor in town. Read Acts uh, chapter 25. Verses 1 to 12 now. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. And that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you come down, go go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now I mentioned a few uh, moments ago that the latter chapters of Acts are chronicling how Paul is going to make it on to Rome, where he will testify to Jesus. 
But notice here, we've just read, here we find Paul faultless. He's found innocent of all the charges, charges levied against him. You see there in verse 1, we meet this new governor who's come to town, Festus. We actually know very little about Festus outside of the New Testament. What we do know from our text is that Festus, he took over after Felix, uh, who couldn't find Paul guilty of any previous charges uh, when he put him on trial. But Felix, he wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he left Paul in prison. One of the first things that Festus does in his rule as a new, the new governor is to visit the territories that he has been commissioned to oversee and govern. And what he finds in this territory is he has quite a problem on his hands. There's this lingering case against this man named Paul. In, even after two years of Paul being in prison, the, the leaders of, of, of the Jews are still interested in seeing Paul put to death. And they want a favor from their new governor. They got one from their last one. They think they're owed one from their new one. But we know, as from the text here, what they're really after is the completion of their assassination plot against Paul. They want to put him to death. And verses 4 and 5 tell us that Festus, he's decided to have Paul arraigned there in Caesarea. And this decision, by the hand of divine providence, continues to secure Paul's protection. And it's actually just another link in the chain of making sure that Paul will be carried to Rome. And what we're seeing here is that the heart's of the Roman rulers are like a stream in the hands, uh, or a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The Lord God, Jesus, is in control of his messenger, and he's going to send him on to Rome. Jesus wants Paul to go to Rome, and he'll use the righteous and unrighteous desires of others, the Jews and the Roman rulers, to bring that about. When Paul's trial before Festus commences, notice that the Jews, they levy their same old charges against Paul, But Luke says, at the end of verse 7, you see what he says there? They brought many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Here is one of many declarations of Paul's innocence, that he's faultless. And we find Paul's own declaration there in verse 8. Paul has not committed any offense against anyone or anything, either the law or the temple, or not even against Caesar. Paul is faultless. He's innocent. And Festus, he's clearly stuck in a bind, isn't he? Uh, Paul is one man. The Jews are many. So he makes a quick political calculation. He figures that he could do the Jews a favor. And so he asks Paul if he could send him back to Jerusalem. Once again, we see Paul faced with an unrighteous ruler. Felix, the previous governor, wanted to do the Jews a favor. So he unjustly left Paul in prison. And like Felix before him, Festus is more interested in the pleasure of man than he is in pursuing justice and righteousness. In this way... Think of Jesus' trials. Paul's trials, they mirror Jesus' trials, don't they? Remember, Pontius Pilate was more interested in pleasing the crowd than he was in pursuing justice for Jesus. Very often, the path of the followers of Jesus will follow Jesus' path as well. And here, let me just usher in a word of application to those of you who work in the realm of law and government and legislation. Yes, very often, you will serve a constituency. And it is good and right that you're often deferential to them, to their desires and their wishes. But at the end of the day, you ultimately serve the Lord Jesus Christ, His truth, His justice, His righteousness. So when it comes time to decide between pleasing your constituency and your boss or the Lord Jesus, you should seek to please the Lord Jesus. And note too, the constituency here, their will and their desires are not righteous. The constituency is not always filled with righteous and just desires. So you have to weigh carefully 
what the Lord Jesus requires of you in pursuing righteousness and justice. In verse 10, you see there, Paul, he declines to go back to Jerusalem. He knows that he should not go backward, but forward onto Rome. And Caesar's courts are exactly where he needs to be. And though Jesus might be divinely orchestrating Paul's movements, Paul knows that he must express his own agency in accordance with the divine will. Paul once again declares that he's faultless, and he challenges Festus to do the right and just thing by appealing to Festus's conscience. Did you see that there? He says, to the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. Paul is nothing, if not bold. He's not afraid to speak the truth to those who hold his life in their hands because he trusts the Lord. He knows his life is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord has promised him that he will testify in Rome. Three times in verse 11, he declares his innocence. He is not a wrongdoer. He hasn't done anything for which he deserves to die. And there is nothing to the charges against him. And since this is the case, Paul says that no one can give me up to them. It's a really interesting play on words that's happening here. That word for favor earlier in the text is the idea of a gift. And what Paul is saying is that, uh, Festus, I'm not going to be your gift to the Jews. You can't give me up as a gift to them. And so he appeals to Caesar. We can see in verse 12 that Festus he finally agrees to Paul's appeal. Paul's leveraging, as I said, the legal system for the furtherance of preaching the gospel there in Rome. He's using his innocence and Festus's unrighteousness, really, to pave a path to Rome where he can preach Jesus. Paul is not a passive pawn, but an active participant in accomplishing God's will for his journey to Rome. Well, in the first half of Acts chapter 25, Paul proclaims his innocence before Festus. But then something interesting happens. Festus proclaims Paul's innocence before Agrippa in the second half. Read verses 13 to 27 now of Acts chapter 25. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they, and they stay, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem... The chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case uh, of evils, such as evils, I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive, being at a loss how to investigate these questions. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and to be tried regarding them, tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, 
You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Well, let's begin there at the end and observe the obvious. If you don't have charges to indicate, then you probably have an innocent man standing before you. Whatever the case may be, as I said, these verses as a whole actually present Festus proclaiming Paul's innocence before King Agrippa. And just as Festus entered the scene in verse 1, so Agrippa enters the scene there in verse 13. Who is this man, Agrippa? Well, he is Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa I, who back in Acts chapter 12 had James, the brother of John, put to death. Uh, His father, uh, Agrippa I, for Agrippa II, Agrippa II's father, Agrippa I, uh, Agrippa I died, sorry, I'm getting my dates right, died when he was around 17 uh, or 18 years of old, 18 years of age. And then he was just sometime later appointed uh, by Caesar to rule over his father's kingdom. And what we need to, to recognize is that Paul is about to come before a man who has a heritage of hatred uh, toward the Christian church. Agrippa II not only knew the customs and controversies of the Jews very well, but he was actually later instrumental in pleading with the Jews to maintain peace with Rome. His sister Bernice, you see there, joined him in his royal court upon the death of her husband. Uh, So that's who arrives there in Caesarea for this trial. Uh, When they arrive, Festus explains his Pauline predicament there in verses 14 to 21. Uh, Zero in on verse 18. You see verse 18 there? Notice what Festus tells Agrippa. The Jews have accused Paul, but they weren't the charges he was expecting. Uh, Rather, they were disputing about doctrine. They They were debating about whether or not this man Jesus got up from the dead. So here's what we need to understand. Paul is faultless. He's innocent when it comes to the charges of being a deceitful teacher and a defiler of the temple and a disturber of tranquility. But, but, he is guilty of proclaiming Jesus' life and death and resurrection as the hope of Israel. And this is the central issue of all of Paul's trials. Jesus as the hope of Israel, the resurrected Messiah. And this, this is what piques Agrippa's interest there in verse 22. Given that this is what the controversy is over, he wants to hear from Paul. So as we see there in verses 23 to 27, Festus, he kind of expedites Paul's examination. It's really an amazing scene. There is a striking contrast between Agrippa and Bernice's grand entrance of being led in there, verse 23, and Paul being brought in as a prisoner in chains. Paul's array before governors and kings, military personnel, and dignitaries there in the city. And take a look at what Festus tells Agrippa there in verse 25 as he introduces the case. He says, But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Once again, Paul is pronounced innocent. He's found faultless. And he says there in verse 26, Festus says, I've got, I've got nothing, right? I've got nothing to write to Caesar about. Beloved, I hope that it's plain for you to see from Acts 25 that Paul is found faultless. 
He not only proclaims his innocence before Festus, but Festus proclaims his innocence before Agrippa. Even Paul's accusers know deep down in the back of their minds he's not guilty. Insofar as it depends upon you, we too should be faultless before governing authorities because we've been holy in all of our conduct. Paul was innocent of the charges of disturbing the peace and defiling the temple. You know, our brother Jed will be working out uh, our relationship to the governing authorities in more detail in his Sunday school class here in the month of May. So I would encourage you to uh, come at 9.30 and hear Jed teach on that subject, attend those talks, uh, ask specific questions, addressing specific issues. But in the main, I, I, I do think we need to recognize that civil authorities are divinely appointed. They are servants of God, called to promote the good and punish the evil. And as Christians, we are called to obey them in what is lawful according to Scripture. Uh, Where those governing authorities command what God forbids, or forbid what God commands, to use the language of John Stott, we obey God rather than man. Nevertheless, our, our posture should be one of submission and sinlessness before the eyes of God, and generally speaking, the governing authorities. Paul is found faultless in Acts 25. And in fact, in chapter 26, his innocence will continue to be pronounced. But another threat is more prominent in our second chapter. In Acts 26, Paul is found faithful. When Christ commissioned him and converted him, he was faithful and obedient to the Lord Jesus. And like Paul, we should be found faithful. This is our second point. Be found faithful. Let's begin to unpack Acts chapter 26. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 26. The first 11 verses of Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, that I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Well, in these verses, we get another glimpse into Paul's past of who he was before the Lord Jesus, met him and confronted him and saved him. This is really the beginning of Paul's fifth and longest defense here in the book of Acts. At the outset, Paul noted, uh, notes that he's um, grateful, he's fortunate 
that it's occurring before Agrippa, because he's familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. This knowledge, Agrippa's knowledge, is going to shape how Paul presses home his point in the beginning, middle, and end of his defense. Because Agrippa is aware of the writings of Moses and the prophets, Paul is able to press their message home to his heart and conscience. And I would just note, in your own evangelism, if at all possible, it's good to know who you're talking to and what knowledge they have of the things of God. You should desire to appeal to their knowledge and consciences, just as Paul does here. After Paul uh, explains in verses 4 and 5 that he was not only a thoroughgoing Jew, but a faultless Pharisee who kept strictly to their religion, uh, these things, Paul says, he, they were known about him from his youth. Everyone there could testify to the fact Paul wasn't an unknown figure. He was a well-known figure. And he was known for this from his youth. And let me just usher in a word of application to our youth, to children and our young adults here. Children and young people notice that Paul knew and studied the scriptures from his youth. And yet, he was outside of Jesus Christ. You can know the scriptures and not savingly know the Savior. Paul grew up in in the church of his day, so to speak. But he was lost. And the same can be true of you. So I urge you to come to Christ today. Turn from your sin and to place your faith in Him. And as you come to Him, don't despise your upbringing in the church. I I don't think Paul is giving an account of his past because he he hates his past. He hates his history. No, I I think Paul is grateful for it. He, He knows the Scriptures. He knew the catechism of religion of his day. And he could use them. In his teaching and sharing Christ. So, so don't despise your upbringing. Don't despise that your parents or your Sunday school teachers make you memorize scripture or the catechism. God can use those in your life to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he did in Paul's life. Your knowledge of the scriptures and systematic theology, God can be pleased to use for his great glory. In fact, it is the good news of Jesus that has Paul on trial. Did you notice that in verses 6 to 8? It was almost kind of an aside or an excursus for Paul in how he tells his story. Paul's announcing once again that his hope in Jesus is nothing other than God's fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. This is a restatement of what he said in Acts chapter 24 verses 14 and 15. Paul sees Christianity as the full flower of the Old Testament faith. And this is really what Paul is accused of. Of believing that God has fulfilled His promises in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in God should not be surprised. They they shouldn't think it incredible or impossible that God would raise Jesus from the dead. Because that's exactly what the Old Testament promised. As we thought about uh, a few weeks ago, these promises can be found in Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 16 and other numerous places. Jesus is Paul's hope. And yet, there was a time where he persecuted personally those who put their faith in Jesus. That's what Paul says in verses 9 to 11. And notice that his persecution, it wasn't a soft form of persecution. Look at all of his language there in verse 9. He opposed the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, he locked up many, put them to death, cast his vote against them. Verse 11, he punished them. He tried to make them blaspheme. He was in a raging fury persecuting them. Paul was an insolent opponent of Jesus and his people. But there has been a radical transformation that has taken place in Paul's life. 
And we'll, we'll look at that transformation in just a moment. But I want to tell you right here and right now, whatever your conversion story is, you should be thankful for your rescue in Jesus Christ. You, you may not have persecuted Christians like Paul. You may have. You may not have put others to death like Paul, but you have certainly murdered others in your heart. You've, you've lived in rebellion just like Paul. We, we all have. Whatever your past is or was before Christ, don't despise it. Recognize that it is part of God's preparation for your proclamation of Jesus' saving power. Think of, think of Paul, right? In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul describes his past. And then he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, that it was for this reason that he received mercy, that Jesus might display his perfect patience to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Whatever your salvation story is, recognize that God might just be pleased to use it to bring others to know Jesus and His saving power. That's part of probably why Paul tells his story about Jesus saved him. He rescued him, changed him from a persecutor to a preacher in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 23. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 23 now of Acts chapter 26. In this connection, in Paul's connection of going on to persecute people, in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what, has come, what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Well, in verses 13 to 15, Paul recalls his confrontation by Christ on the road to Damascus. This is now the third time in the book of Acts we've heard Paul's conversion story. What the new information here is in this account 
is that Paul was kicking against the goats. Paul was like a, a stubborn ox who's kicking against those prods that press against him, pressing him on to work. Sometimes there'd be prods on the back of a cart, so if an ox would kick against them if he didn't want to keep working or stop and then get prodded by them. But notice that this is not a situation with the ox or Paul can win. The will of the Lord is stronger. The Lord is more stubborn to see Paul saved than Paul was in himself and his disobedience rebellion against God. God will have, the Lord Jesus will have the prize for which he died in his apostle Paul. He will make a persecutor a trophy of grace and a preacher of the gospel. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this is you. Maybe you are kicking against the goats. Maybe the Lord Jesus has been after you, pursuing you, prodding you, calling you to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Him. Friend, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Give yourself up to Him now. Don't resist Him, but receive Him. After his confrontation, Paul recounts his commission there in verses 16 to 18. Jesus has appointed Paul to be a servant and a witness. And while Paul is uniquely an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned to go to the Jews and to the Gentiles, this is still the commission of every Christian. When each of us were called and converted, we were commissioned to be ambassadors for Christ, servants and witnesses of His glory and grace. That's what we find Jesus saying in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And notice what Jesus commissions Paul to do there in verse 18. He is sent to open their eyes. But Paul can't do that. He's a mere human man. Paul can't do that. But Jesus can do that through him. This is how he has chosen to work. Through people like Paul. Through people like you and me. But why? Why does Jesus want to send Paul and us to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. We're told there, there's a purpose clause in verse 18. It's those words, so that. That's the purpose clause there in verse 18. So that they may turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to God. These are two different ways of expressing the same idea of salvation. Through Paul's preaching, Jesus wants to transfer sinners from the domain of darkness and the devil to the domain of light and the love of God. Do you realize that this is what needs to happen in your life if you're outside of Christ? You need to be transferred from Satan's power to the power of God. You need to be received into the light and the love of God. And Christians, you recognize that this is what we have the privilege of participating in. God is pleased to use us in our proclamation of the gospel to transfer people from Satan's grasp to salvation. What an honor it is to serve Him. And why does Jesus want to do this for sinners? There are two reasons there embedded in verse 18. He wants sinners to receive the forgiveness of sins. To receive His pardon. And to receive a place among those who are sanctified. That is set apart for salvation. By faith in me. See, Jesus wants sinners to place their faith in Him alone. Not in their works. But in His work of salvation. Jesus sends out preachers so that His pardon may be announced. So that sinners may know that they can be welcomed into Jesus' family and welcomed into His presence in glory. Jesus, He told Paul the means to, through faith in Him. 
That's what we preach. We preach faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, recognize again the immense privilege you have in your commission of being called, being converted, being asked to go out and share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant and witness. He's going to use you to do something only He can do. Open blind eyes. You can't do that, can you? No. But Jesus can do it through you. It's how He's chosen to work through servants who bear witness. He is sending you to set the captives free from sin and Satan, to extend His pardon, to redeem ruined rebels and welcome them into His spiritual family. Beloved, like Paul, you've been confronted, converted, and commissioned to make Christ known. And like Paul, you should be obedient. Notice what Paul says in verses 19 to 21. Amazingly, he turns and he addresses directly King Agrippa. He says that he's been committed to Christ and the commission that Christ has entrusted to him. He says, I've been obedient. He has declared the good news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere Jesus has sent him. He has declared the good news of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, distinguished and despised. That is who he proclaimed the good news of Jesus to. But did you notice what he proclaimed? At the end of verse 20, Paul says that he proclaimed repentance. He proclaimed turning from sin. And he proclaimed that those who come to Jesus should walk in repentance. This must be something that is a part of our message. If you've been in a, a if you joined the church, you've been through a membership interview before, this is usually a question that one of the elders is going to ask you about. We, we urge people to what? Turn from their sins, repent, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to call people to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus. And we should call them to keep walking in repentance. Because we don't just turn away from sin once. We turn away from sin over and over again. This, Paul says, should be evident in our lives. And at the end of verse 22 and in verse 23, Paul tells us that he proclaimed everything. The prophets and Moses proclaimed that the Christ must suffer. It was a divine necessity that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. So Jesus was raised. This is precisely the work of Jesus, isn't it? Again, what was mysteriously hidden in types and shadows and promises in the Old Testament was gloriously revealed and fulfilled in Jesus' redemptive work. And this should make us pause, this statement from Paul. Why would the Christ, the, the promised Savior and King of the Old Testament, why would the Christ, why would Jesus have to suffer? Why was it a divine necessity? Because one, the wages of sin is death. And two, because God promised it. And He is a God who keeps His promises. We, we see promises like that in Isaiah 53. That the Messiah would suffer. And since God is holy, just, and good, He cannot let sins go unpunished. Since He's faithful to His promises to redeem fallen man, the wages of sin must be paid in death. He must keep His promises to rescue His people from their sin. Friend, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you've rebelled against God? Sin is living our own way rather than God's way. And since God is the author of our lives... He has authority over them. And He calls us to live according to His ways. And so sin is nothing less than our rebellion against God. And we have all, the Bible tells us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so our sins must be punished. And this is why, in God's great love, He sent His Son, God the Son, to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus lived a righteous life, a sinless life, a faultless life, a life that we have not lived. And yet because the scriptures predicted that the Savior would suffer, and because our sins had to be punished on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sin in repentance and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he was paid their wages of sin. Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for sinners. But three days after his death, as Paul preaches here, three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, the first to get up, because those who trust in him will also get up from their graves. God vindicated the Lord Jesus, proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. So friend, either we hide ourselves in Jesus, trusting in him, placing our faith in him, or we will suffer for our sins. This is what Paul proclaimed. This is what I proclaim to you now. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus, believing that He suffered for you and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. In verse 20, Paul told us to whom and where He proclaimed the gospel. To everyone, everywhere. And in verse 23, He told us what He proclaimed. That Jesus suffered and rose. And in verse 22, he tells us how he proclaimed this good news. Did you see it in verse 22? He proclaimed the good news with the help that comes from God. Dear Christian, do you ever wonder how you will proclaim the good news? Do you ever think to yourself, I'm, I'm in this conversation with a friend. I, I know I need to share Christ with them. How am I going to get this out to them? Well, you will do it with the help that comes from God. If you lack courage, pray and ask for the help that comes from God. If you lack the words, pray and ask for the help that comes from God. Take up your Bible and read His words. They are help that comes from God. Recognize that the great Apostle Paul was not so proud to think that his faithfulness in being an ambassador for Christ rested entirely upon his efforts. He recognizes that his Faithfulness was rooted in God's gracious, energizing help to him. I've said a thousand times before, and I'll say it a thousand times to you again. All that God calls us to do, he gives us the grace to do. Depend upon the grace and the help that comes from God. And like Paul, be found faithful to share Christ. Be found faithful to share Christ with small and great alike. Share Christ with congressmen, with dignitaries. And ambassadors, share Christ with your next door neighbor, with those you meet in a coffee shop, with your plumber. A person's position and prominence in society does not develop or diminish their need for Christ. Paul was not cowed by the men before him. Look at his interaction with Festus and Agrippa there in verses 27 to 32. Look at how we find him pleading and persuading them and all who hear him. Read Acts 26 verses 24 to the end of the chapter. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. 
For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now friends, notice uh, the moment that Festus cries out and calls Paul insane. And yes, I read it with a loud voice because it says he said it in a loud voice. So when you're reading the Bible out loud, you're ever asked to read the Bible uh, and read it publicly. And it says a phrase like that, you should read the next phrase loudly. Anyway, uh, notice the moment, the, the exact moment, the precise moment that Festus calls Paul insane. It comes when he addresses King Agrippa directly about Jesus' death and resurrection. And you think about it, what's going on here. Perhaps Festus feels bad that Paul has directly appealed to his honored guest. But this is exactly what we must do with the gospel. We must appeal to people directly. It's not just, here's this news. There that is. No, no, you should repent and believe in Jesus. It's exactly what we must do with the gospel. Appeal to people directly. Being found faithful means actually pleading with our hearers. Festus, though, we see here, he essentially dismisses Paul as a madman. And this happens sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes Christians and their message are mocked and maligned as mad. But how does Paul reply? You see there in verses 25 and 26, he replies to Festus and then he turns around right back to, to uh, Agrippa, seeking to persuade him. But in his reply, he essentially says, no, 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 I'm not insane. I'm telling the truth. These, these things happen. These things happen. Notice this. That the truth of Jesus, even the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, are viewed as insanity, or perhaps we could say foolishness. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Beloved, don't be surprised when you are dismissed for declaring Christ. And make sure you do what Paul does here. He points to the facts, the historic facts, and the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were historic events. They were objectively observed. They took place in time and in space. They're chronicled by eyewitnesses in the Gospels and even secular historians in the first century. The things that happened with Jesus were not done in a corner where nobody knew, nobody heard, nobody saw. No. Paul. Paul holds Agrippa to account for his knowledge of them. And Agrippa was well aware with both the events of Jesus and the spread and growth of the Christian church. Christians are not trying to keep the message of Jesus a secret. We're not a subversive society trying to hide our beliefs. Rather, we want to publicly proclaim Jesus. Paul, he went for Agrippa's head knowledge in verse 25. And in verse 27, he goes for Agrippa's heart. This is what it looks like to persuade. You go for the head, you go after the mind, and the heart. 
given his familiarity with Jewish customs and controversies, Paul asks Agrippa if he believes, it's a heart matter, a faith matter, if he believes the prophet. And faith is rational, as we're seeing Paul explain here as well. It's based on objective, verifiable events. Why do you think Paul does this? Why do you you think Paul asks Agrippa if you believe? Because if you believe the message of the prophets, then you believe the hope-filled message that they proclaim of the Messiah's suffering, dying, and rising. And Agrippa, you see there in verse 28, he, he deflects. He answers a question with a question. It's not going to be so easy to persuade him to be a follower of Jesus. It's not going to happen in such a short amount of time. Friends, we've seen Festus dismiss Paul with a charge of insanity. And now we see Agrippa deflect and decline to answer Paul. And if you're here this morning and you're investigating the claims of Christianity, then friend, be careful of using questions as a smokescreen, as a means of delay or deflection. Don't don't push it off. No, honestly wrestle with the truth about Jesus. Search the scriptures and find your answers. Friend, think about what does it mean if documents written hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus, if the prophets were right and that Jesus fulfilled them and that God raises the dead, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the Messiah. It means that he is the Savior. It means that He is the Lord and that salvation is available to you today. Paul was not afraid of these men. Both Festus and Agrippa are clearly afraid of the men in the assembly. Remember, there's this great host gathered there. They entered the room with great pomp. Why wouldn't Agrippa say, yes, Paul, I believe? Because he would lose his reputation and his honor in the world. Friend, it is better to be rejected by men and accepted by God than to be accepted by men and rejected by God. Today is the day of salvation. Believe upon the Lord Jesus today. And Christian, let me plead with you to align your heart with Paul's there in verse 29. Paul is not concerned if it takes a short time or a long time to persuade Agrippa. He is not concerned if it is difficult or easy to persuade him. What he cares about is that Agrippa and all in that room come to Christ and receive pardon and forgiveness of their sins. And there's a certain sense in which we're all in that assembly as Paul is preaching and speaking. Do you hear Paul pleading with you? Will you receive pardon and forgiveness through Jesus Christ? I pray that you do. Beloved, dear Christian, don't give up. Don't stop persuading and pleading with friends and loved ones. Don't give up whether short or long. We want easy and short, not difficult and long. I get that. And yet still, sometimes, that is how the Lord God saves sinners, through long and patient teaching. Be willing to share Jesus Christ year after year after year. Pray and pray and plead and plead. Paul wants everyone in that room to be free of the condemnation that is due to their sins. He wants them to be Christians. And he also wants them to be free of chains too. He would like to be free of his chains. And this statement from Paul prompts the company's conclusion and departure in verses 30 to 32. They depart and notice they declare Paul's innocence yet again. They declare that Paul was doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And yet he remains in the chains. And it makes you wonder, 
what charges are they going to write to Caesar about? I mean, the whole purpose of this trial and examination is to, to write down the charges that they could send on to Caesar, but they, they just themselves declared, he's kind of done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. What's striking is that though they didn't accomplish their purposes in that trial, God accomplished his. Paul is still going on to Rome. He's still going on to Caesar. And friends, as we conclude, I want to make application to two groups of people here today. After we celebrate communion, uh, we will depart. Uh, We will get up and leave like Festus and Agrippa, Bernice, and all that were in that assembly. But before we depart, as we always do in our services and concluding our services with, we we conclude them with a moment of, of quiet reflection. Uh, And we mean for that time to be reflection upon what God has has taught us. And I want to give you some counsel on how to use that time. If you don't feel awkward about that moment, like, what what are we doing sitting here all quietly? Let me give you some counsel on how to use that time. Uh, If you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus, then I want to invite you to resist the path of Festus and Agrippa. Don't be like Festus. Don't mock and malign and dismiss the message of Christianity without grappling with its claims. And don't be like Agrippa. Don't deflect and refuse to wrestle with the fulfillment of the scriptures. Don't depart with them with kind of a simple shrug of the shoulders. Well, there that was. He's not guilty. Okay. Don't get up and leave without thinking the Christian message through. During that moment of quiet reflection about the life and ministry of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins offered in him, talk to God. Talk to God about your sins. And the forgiveness that's available in Jesus. Maybe purpose in those moments of quiet reflection to to talk with me or another Christian that you came here with this morning about the message of Christianity. Maybe purpose to read through a gospel, one of the biographical accounts of Jesus' life with a Christian friend. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to use that moment of quiet reflection to pray and ask God to help you be found faultless And to be found faithful. Pray and ask God to help you walk with integrity and innocence. So that you may boldly proclaim Christ and plead with those around you to be found in him. Pray that God would supply you with the help that you'll need when he brings opportunities into your life to share Christ with others. While God worked out his purposes to carry Paul to Rome. Paul was faithful to proclaim Christ. And so it may be with us. As God works out his purposes in our lives, to carry us wherever He will, may we be found faithful to proclaim Christ. May it be said of us, now faithful, play the man, speak for thy God. Fear not the wicked's malice, nor their rod. Speak boldly, man, the truth is on thy side. Die for it, and to life in triumph ride. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we confess now that we need the help that comes from you to be found faithful. We are weak. Uh, We are often afraid, sometimes cowards. So we pray and ask that you would grant us courage. Grant us wisdom for the facing of this hour and each hour you give us in this life. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to walk in holiness with innocence and integrity. Help us to be found faultless. Father, we pray and ask that you help us too to be found faithful. Remind us that in Christ we have pardon. 
Remind us that we are called to the privilege of seeing the eyes of the spiritually blind open. And we do pray and ask that you would do that in our lives, that you would allow us the privilege of seeing others come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might declare your power and glory and rejoice and delight in you. Oh, Father, be glorified, we pray and ask in our lives. Help us to be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.